Welcome to the Carlat Psychiatry Podcast. This is another episode from the Geriatric Psychiatry Team. Interviewing techniques require adaptation in older adults, such as accounting for hearing or vision impairment, speaking slowly and clearly. And this episode will cover additional factors to consider when evaluating older patients. I'm Stephanie Collier, the editor-in-chief of the Carlat Geriatric Psychiatry Report. And I'm Dr. Rehan Aziz. I am Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Neurology at Hackensack Meridian School of Medicine. I'm also the Associate Program Director for Geriatric Psychiatry at Jersey Shore University Medical Center. We have some exciting news for you. You can now receive CME credit for listening to this episode and all new episodes going forward on this feed. Follow the podcast CME subscription link in the show notes to get access to the CME post-test for this episode and future episodes. Let's start by talking about how providers can assess older patients' functional status. This is something that makes working with older adults unique. There are two different levels at which we assess functional status. So we will evaluate for ADLs, activities of daily living, as well as IADLs, instrumental activities of daily living. The IADLs are more advanced daily living skills. They're often the first activities impacted by dementia. I recommend asking about them in the presence of a caregiver because patients may minimize or be unaware of their own deficits. How do you remember the ADLs and IADLs? So I use a couple of mnemonics. They're a little bit morbid, but one of them is DEATH for ADLs and SHAFT for IADLs. And even to this day, I still run through those mnemonics in my head when I'm interviewing patients. So DEATH stands for dressing, eating, ambulating, toileting, and hygiene. So I will ask patients, have you needed help getting dressed, buttoning your shirts? Have you put on things inside out or upside down? Are you needing any help cutting your food? Have you been choking on food? For ambulating, I'll ask about falls and what are the circumstances that led to the falls. For toileting, I will ask about if there have been any accidents, either for stool or urine. In recent times, if they're having to use any undergarments to help. And for hygiene, I'll ask how often are they showering, changing their clothes? Do they need help in the shower, such as with the hot and cold, taking their clothes off, getting dressed afterwards, and so on. That's really helpful. So death, dressing, eating, ambulating, toileting, and hygiene. What about shaft? So shaft is the mnemonic for instrumental activities of daily living. So these are the more advanced daily activities that are usually affected first when people start to have memory issues. SHAFT stands for shopping, housekeeping, accounting, food prep, and transportation. So for shopping, I'll ask how are they doing at the store? Are they forgetting to buy items that they need? Are they having trouble handling money at the cash register? Are they buying too many of things they already have or not buying what they came for? For housekeeping, I'll ask about the condition of their residence. Are things more messy than they have been in the past? Are they having trouble using the washing machine, dishwasher, vacuum cleaner? For accounting, I'll ask if they've made any mistakes with checking if they're requiring more help. 
balancing their checkbook or paying off bills? Have they incurred any late fees? For food prep, I'll ask about have they forgotten to turn off the stove or the oven? Have they burned any food? Are they forgetting old recipes? Is food tasting different than how it did in the past? And for transportation, I'll ask about driving mainly. Have they gotten lost on the roads? Have there been any motor vehicle accidents? Have they gotten any tickets? All right. So shaft, shopping, housekeeping, accounting, food preparation, and transportation. How do you assess for the presence of caregiver support? One thing that I've always required is that patients always come with a caregiver to their appointments. I find that the appointments aren't very helpful unless I have somebody else there who also can provide another perspective on the patient. So I'll be observing the way that the patient and their caregiver interact during the entire session and how cued in the caregiver is to the patient's needs. I will also ask the patient, if you need help, is somebody there for you? Are you able to reach out to them? Do you feel at times that you're struggling and there's no one there? The next assessment to consider when evaluating older adults is the mental status assessment. The evaluation of mental status is similar to younger patients, but it involves a few additional observations. The first observation is appearance. Patients who experience depression or apathy may neglect their hygiene. Those with cognitive disorders may be dressed inappropriately, such as wearing a few layers on a warm day. Appearance can also provide a clue regarding the adequacy of a patient's support system. For example, overwhelmed caregivers may have less time or energy to help a compromised patient. The next observation to take note of is psychomotor activity. So this is the level of energy, motivation, drive a patient has. Sometimes it can be elevated, sometimes it can be too slow. Often older adults who are feeling depressed, having memory issues such as dementia or altered mental status may have slowed movements. Patients with advanced dementia might appear disengaged from the interview. Patients with moderate dementia might feel the opposite. They might be restless, they might be pacing, and patients with anxiety might fidget or wring their hands. Then there's affect. That's what we observe when we're talking to the patient and observing the patient in the exam room. A lot of older adults demonstrate reduced emotions, even in the absence of mental illness. In other words, a constricted affect, meaning reduced emotional expression, doesn't mean that a patient is depressed. But Depression should remain on your differential. Other things to watch out for include if the patient is more withdrawn, if they seem irritable, if they're weary, or if they're apathetic. We also want to be aware of behaviors such as paranoia, delusions, and hallucinations. Hearing or vision deficits can sometimes trigger hallucinations, which can be fixed by correcting the deficits. Patients with Parkinson's disease or dementia with Lewy bodies often experience complex hallucinations that are visual of people, animals, or shadows. Second-person auditory hallucinations are common in older adults with dementia. Severely depressed older patients may have auditory hallucinations that condemn them or encourage self-destructive behavior. Elders with moderate dementia can suffer from delusions. Delusions are fixed false beliefs that are not in keeping with reality. Delusions can take many forms. Most often, 
we see delusions of infidelity, paranoia, or theft in patients with dementia. They might be triggered by short-term memory loss, for example, misplacing household items and thinking someone has stolen them. Delusional depression is also more prevalent in older adults who are depressed than in middle-aged adults. The most common delusions are frequently somatic, meaning body delusions, and often they're centered around the stomach. Delusions can also feature negative content, such as I'm losing my mind. Lastly, we want to take note of cognition. So this is something that I'll be assessing for right from the first moments when I begin talking to the patient. I'll listen to how they tell me their story, what the recall is and what brought them to the appointment and of recent events, as well as long-term recall. Especially on an initial interview, I will administer an office-based cognitive assessment. The mini mental status exam has traditionally been the most popular one that's used, but it's fallen a little bit out of favor in recent years because it doesn't fully test the aspects of cognition that we're interested in. I've started to use the Montreal cognitive assessment more. Both of these, however, are copyrighted assessments and require some extra training, especially the MOCA. The scales in the public domain include the St. Louis University Mental State Exam, also known as the slums, which you can find easily online through a Google search, as well as the Minicog, which has become very popular over the last few years. The Minicog is just a three-word recall as well as a clock drawing. I would say overall, the best assessment is the clock drawing, if you can only do one test. For a clock drawing, you can ask the patient to draw the numbers on the face of a clock with the hands pointing to 10 past 11. The last assessment providers can use when evaluating older adults is the safety assessment. This assessment has four main components, suicidal thoughts, driving, wandering, and elder abuse. How do you talk about sensitive topics with your older adult patients like suicidal thoughts or elder abuse? So my experience in this area has been really good over the past several years. I find that my patients are much more willing and interested in talking about how they're feeling, especially during this pandemic and whether or not they've had thoughts about not living anymore. So my main advice would be don't be afraid to approach these topics with your older adults. Chances are they've heard about suicide, they've heard about depression, maybe they're experiencing themselves, and they're often very ready to talk about what their experiences are. That's really different than in younger adults, right? I think that's true, yeah. Older adults are often thinking about death and dying, and, and so it's a topic that's on their mind. They might have experienced it in their personal life with family and friends who have passed, and they tend to have thoughts about those topics that they're willing to share. Whereas younger adults may or may not be forthcoming with their suicidal intent. And do you ever feel like you offend your patients by asking these questions? I've never felt that way. I think a lot of asking these questions really is uh, determined by how comfortable the patient is with you. And usually by, uh, so I'll usually ask these questions later in the interview after I've established rapport with the patient. So they already have a sense that I'm interested in them, I'm interested in their story, and I want to help. And so when I start asking about suicidal thoughts, they're usually right on board with that conversation. And when do you jump in and do something? So if I think a patient is at high risk for hurting themselves or hurting others, then it's time to act. We have to keep the patient safe. 
Can you talk about elder abuse and the kinds of forms that elder abuse can take? So as clinicians, we're mandated reporters for elder abuse. Some states have adult protective services, while others have elderly protective services. Abuse can take many forms, and I'm always listening for it, as well as observing the patient to see if there are any obvious signs of abuse. Some of the forms include physical abuse, financial abuse, sexual, abandonment, and neglect. If I suspect that an older adult has been the victim of abuse, I'll try to interview them alone, and I'll ask how they feel at home, how do they feel with their family members or caregivers, How are they managing financially? Unfortunately, a lot of older adults can become victims of financial abuse because they're dependent upon their caregivers for assistance, which can lead to a difficult situation for them. I will review the patient's advanced directives and pay attention to who has permission to communicate with the patient's clinicians. And how do you assess for abandonment or neglect? So neglect, I think, is a little bit easier because I'll observe the patient. So if they seem disheveled, if they seem thin, if they're malodorous, um, if they have bruises or cuts uh, or other unexplained injuries, then I'll become suspicious that maybe they're not being treated well or they're, they're being hurt in some way. For abandonment, I might ask the patient, if you need help, is it available? Are you ever left alone and you're struggling um, or you're feeling scared or lonely? And is this happening often and for long periods of time? And if you suspect, at what point would you call the Adult Protective Services Agency? So what I always tell uh, my trainees is it's not our job to do the investigation. So as soon as I become suspicious that an older adult is being abused, that should trigger a phone call. It's the responsibility of these agencies to do the investigation to see whether or not the allegations are true. Providers should also assess the ability of older adults to drive safely. Older adults are at a higher risk for motor vehicle accidents due to decreased reaction times, impaired vision and hearing, and difficulty managing complex road situations. If cognitive impairment is suspected, a family member can be interviewed. You can ask whether the patient has gotten lost driving in familiar neighborhoods or whether they've missed traffic signs in the past few months or gotten into accidents. Also ask about recent tickets. You can consider performing a trail-making test Part B in the office, since there is good evidence that it correlates with driving ability. If I suspect that a patient is unsafe driving, I request a driving evaluation or a retest. In the case of dangerous driving, clinicians may be obligated to alert the DMV. Lastly, we should consider the issue of wandering. Wandering becomes a problem in moderate and severe dementia. Patients can become disoriented and they may be unable to retrace their steps home. In some instances, patients wander outside in cold weather or onto highways. If you're concerned about wandering, you can suggest that the patient wear a medical ID bracelet or carry an item with embedded GPS tracking like a necklace, bracelet, or phone. You can also recommend installing deadbolts, doorway alarms, or even cameras, and alerting neighbors or the local police of your patient's wandering risk. 
Overall, it's important to remember that older adults require an expanded assessment that takes into account functional capacity, social support, cognition, and safety. We discussed how providers can assess an older patient's functional status today by asking about activities of daily living, otherwise known as ADLs, and instrumental activities of daily living, known as IEDLs, using the acronyms DEATH and SHAFT. We also talked about how to conduct a mental health assessment by observing a patient's appearance, psychomotor activity, affect, and thought content, including paranoia, delusions, and hallucinations. Finally, we covered the important components of a safety assessment, including suicidal thoughts, driving, wandering, and elder abuse. The newsletter Clinical Update is available for subscribers to read in the Carlat Geriatric Psychiatry Report. Subscribers get print issues in the mail and email notifications when new issues are available on the website. Subscriptions also come with full access to all the articles on the website and CME credits. And everything from Carlet Publishing is independently researched and produced. There's no funding from the pharmaceutical industry. Yes, the newsletters and books we produce depend entirely on reader support. There are no ads and our authors don't receive industry funding. That helps us to bring you unbiased information you can trust. And don't forget, you can now earn CME credits for listening to our podcasts. Just click the link in the description to access the CME post desk for this episode. As always, thanks for listening and have a great day.